Stephen and Amanda back and Audrey singing with us. Thank you guys. Uh, well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. If you're not good after that, I got nothing for you. I really don't. I mean, seriously. Hey, listen, before we get started for today, I want to let you know about something uh, that's coming up in a couple weeks. It's something we do every year. Uh, it's Trunk or Treat. Uh, and listen, many of you guys have been a part of Trunk or Treat in the past. In fact, as I'm looking around the room, I am remembering some of your memorable costumes uh, from years past. And look, it is time for that yet again. And you might ask, listen, why do we do this? I mean, we're a church. Uh, hi. Um, so, I know I don't see myself there. That was interesting. Uh, so, um, I just want to see what I look like. Uh, but uh, you said, why, why do we do this as a church? Why would we dress up in costumes and fill the square? Well, look, it is a great opportunity uh, for us to really connect to our community. Uh, if you came to the, the, the festival yesterday, you saw how many people just come into the area. People who might never come here on a Sunday morning will absolutely come and take candy from us. Uh, especially when it's free. They will. They'll bring their children. And we get an opportunity to interact with them, to share with them, to meet them. You might reconnect with somebody you haven't seen in a while. It's a great opportunity to say, hey, man, why don't you come and hang out with us? We're not normal, but we're a lot of fun, all right? Come see us on a Sunday morning. It'll be great. Uh, and look, it's also a great way of connecting within the church. When you get together and have just funny costumes, maybe you're in a community group and you plan this together, it's a great way of building community within the congregation as well. So this is kind of an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. We'd love for you to be a part. Uh, and if you look at that uh, sheet that was on your chair when you came in, there's a couple different ways for you to be involved. First off, candy. Uh, we want to give this candy to people. They're all going to come for that. So uh, if you're going to do a trunk, man, bring some candy. But we want to help you with that. And if you can't do a trunk or can't be a part of it, what you can do is maybe when you're buying candy for Halloween, just pick up an extra bag. And you can come drop it off at the table as you're coming in. You might have seen it this morning. And say, hey, I want to provide some of the candy for trunk or treat. Secondly, uh, you can say, hey, I want to do a trunk. And we really need a lot of us to do this. It takes uh, about 20-some-odd cars uh, to really fill uh, the, uh, the square. And so if you have any inkling at all, we do need your help. Uh, your community group might already be doing that. Get involved there. But if you just want to help by yourself, we need those as well. Uh, we want you to do a trunk, maybe that and a game. We can even help you with ideas. Uh, sign up with Sandy. We can talk to you about things that have been done in the past, things that will be great. We want to help, and we need you to help us in pulling that off. And then thirdly, volunteer. You say, Adam, I can't do a trunk, but well, we need other help as well. Help for setup, for teardown. We're going to have balance houses and popcorn, and we need people to run those stations as well. So you might just want to say, hey, I'll show up for an hour and, and, and we'll work one of those stations. We need a ton of help for this. And so please, sign up for this if you can. It's just two weeks away. Uh, you can sign up with Sandy. You can sign up and talk to one of us. Uh, we'll get you signed up as well. But I am very excited to see all the creativity you guys are going to come up with. But be praying. Praying that it's an opportunity for us to connect with a ton of people in our area. I kid you not. In the past two weeks, I've had two people say, oh yeah, I remember meeting you. You were Maui last year. Uh, and like that's when they met me for the first time, was hanging out, doing crazy things out here. And they're now kind of hanging out here. So, going to be a great event. Can't wait to see how you guys get involved. Uh, but now, grab your Bibles if you will. Uh, let's go to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 is where we're going to be as we continue our series on worldview. We're trying to answer the question, how do we see the world and how does it see us? We're trying to come up with answers to some of the biggest questions we have. Questions like, is there a God? Why are we here? What's the purpose of my life? These are incredibly important questions because the answers to those questions shape everything that we do. Even if you're not thinking about it, you've got answers and it is guiding how you spend your time, your money, your life, your resources, how you feel about life. They come back to these answers. 
But also, we need to have answers for the world when this world system of values and ideas that has set itself against the Lord, when they come at us with, with non-Christian ideas, how do we answer them? We're going to be starting that in a couple weeks of looking at that. But we're really kind of walking through what does this look like. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 is where we'll be in just a second. As you guys are turning there, uh, it is important to know that you really can learn a lot about what people believe just by listening very closely. If you listen closely to what people say, and if you listen closely to what they get excited about, you can learn a lot about what people really believe. We just kind of betray ourselves with little things that we say. Uh, one of the things that you might have noticed over the past 20 years is that across our entire entertainment spectrum, everybody seems to be obsessed with superheroes. Have you noticed this? Everybody, uh, we, we, we just have tons of movies about this, TV shows, they just keep coming out. Everybody keeps talking about them. And that's not really even just the past 20 years. You can go back to iconic characters like Spider-Man and Superman and Batman. Some of these are almost like 100 years old. Back to the comic books, people have always been enamored by these superheroes. But when you get into Marvel and everything and you watch all the movies, an interesting thing occurs. Have you ever noticed that in almost every single movie, the world is at stake? Have you noticed that? The world is in danger a lot, right? And it requires these superheroes to step up because these are not small stakes. The whole world is in jeopardy and it needs to be saved. And here come these superheroes. And we all kind of wish we could be these superhero people who could save the world. You can hear it outside of movies and entertainment when you hear how we talk about life. If you talk to people about what they want to do in life, many people, and especially many young people, will say this. They'll say, Adam, I want to change the world. You might have said that before. I just, I want to change the world. And they have all different kind of ways that they want to do that. Other people might say it differently. You might say it this way. You might say, Adam, I just want, whenever I die, I want to leave the world a little bit better than when I found it. You ever heard that before? You may have thought that. You may have said it. I just want to leave the world a little bit better than when I found it. And these are very noble ideas, but... Think them through. When you listen to these things, it tells you something what people believe. When people say, I want to save the world, I want to change the world, I want the world to be better than it is now, it means that the world now is not okay. We inherently believe that the world right now is broken. The world right now could be better. The world right now is in some sense wrong, not okay, and it needs saving, it needs changing, it needs improving. Furthermore, what we really believe is that the world's worth saving. If I'm going to spend my life making it better, it means that I think the world is worth saving. And look, these are desires that God actually puts into us. This morning, what if I told you that God absolutely has a plan to save the world? God has been unfolding a plan for millennia. He absolutely has a desire to save the world. And he is inviting you to participate in that plan. God has a plan to save the world. And he is absolutely inviting you and me and also us as a people. He is inviting us to be a part of saving the world. I'm going to show you that plan here today. Before we jump into Mark 1, let's do a little bit of recap on where we've been. We've been unfolding really the story of the gospel. What the Bible teaches us and what we know to be true starts with creation. God made everything. He made us. We are not accidents. He made us on purpose and he made us for a very specific purpose. That purpose is that we were made in the image of God to be in a relationship with him. 
That's why we're here. God made us in his image to be in a relationship with him. This was his purpose from creation. This is what he wanted from us. But then a problem entered in. We fell. We had a fall. We, a sin enters the picture. Instead of listening to the Lord and living in that relationship, we said, God, thank you, but no thank you. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to do things my own way. I like you and all. I just don't want to serve you. And, and so we're going to break that relationship through sin. And when we rebelled against God, we incurred penalties. That penalty is death. When you separate yourself from the source of life, there are natural consequences. That consequence is death. We were sold in slavery to sin. We changed, and, and now we're not in control of anything anymore. We're enslaved to sin. We can't save ourselves. We are bound for death. But then last week, we found out there's good news. There's a gospel of redemption, that God redeems us. You see, He doesn't give up on us. Even though we rebelled against Him, He loves us. He says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ in his grace comes to us. We don't deserve this, but he comes and lives a perfect life. And at the end of that life, instead of getting all that he rightfully deserves, he makes this incredible exchange where instead of getting what he deserves, he says, no, everything that you deserve, all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the death that you and I deserve, I want you to give that to me. Let all of that wrath fall upon me. I will take all of the punishment for your sin. And in exchange, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you my perfect life. And we don't earn this. We can't make up for it. We can't pay it off. We just receive it as grace. God gives us brand new life in Him. And when He rises from the grave, now that we find ourselves in Him, guess what? We have a restored relationship with the Father. God has restored a pathway where now we can live in him just like he made us for. He has redeemed us. This is the gospel. The question is, now what? What do we do now? In between the time where, where, where the, the second coming happens and we go live with, with Christ in eternity forever, what do we do now? And, and there's a temptation here. There's a temptation for us, instead of living in that relationship, instead of growing in our relationship with God, instead of living out our created purpose, we can fall into error. The first is the Corinthian error. Uh, the Corinthian believers, they, they loved God, they, they became Christians, but they had this idea of like, well, hey, I'm saved, and so I can do whatever I want, right? I mean, I'm not going to hell, and, and so I can just send my guts out. Everything's fair game now, right? Surely that's okay. I mean, I'm a Christian, so I can do whatever I want. Right? No. No. How could we do such a thing? Jesus Christ has paid for every one of our sins. It cost Jesus Christ for every one of our transgressions. If we love the Lord, if we've been saved by the Lord, how can we possibly continue to live in sin? How could we possibly just cavalierly do whatever we want, ignore our relationship with God, and just run after sin if we are believers. How in the world can we possibly fall into this error? The second error is the Galatian error. The Galatians were a very different kind of church. They were filled with wonderful type A people. 
who said, hey, listen, okay, you, I got to say, this is really good. And listen, I want to make sure I make God proud. And so I want to do everything right. And, and so listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that grace, and that's awesome. But I also want to do the whole law. I'm going to get everything right. I'm going to do every single rule there can be. And they are just killing themselves, trying to do all these different things. These are my Enneagram ones. These are my type A. These are my entrepreneurs. These are the I can make it happen type people. And he said, I can work all of this off, but they are literally crushed under the burden of the law once again. To which Paul says, no, no, you already have it. God has given you salvation. You don't have to earn it. It's a gift. And even when you don't do it perfectly, God's grace came at the beginning. God's grace is still here. You can live in this relationship with God knowing he has already saved you. You are in his grace. You see, both of these errors ignore the relationship. Both of these errors come back to me. I'll do whatever I want. I'll fix myself instead of living in the relationship of the Lord. We say, well, then what is my life supposed to be about? Well, he actually tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. You know that word? From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Remember, we were made in the image of God to be in relationship with Him. Well, look what He's doing. As we live in Christ, slowly but surely, over time, God is transforming us. He is restoring that image. He is making us like Him. And so as we live as believers, we ought to be growing in our life with Him. This is why we talk about maturity so much here at Double Oak Community Church. It's one of our core values. We want everybody growing in their relationship. We're not perfect yet. I'm not. You're not. We as a church are not. But we're growing. We're becoming like Him. We are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. This is our life on earth. We are in the process of being restored in him. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the story of God saving us. But I want you to pan back a little bit. That's our individual story. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's your story of how you came to faith in Christ, of what God is doing in you. He made you, he loves you, he saved you, and he's now restoring you. But now I want you to take your story, I want you to multiply it by a billion. Now multiply it by another one or two billion. There's close to, what, three billion Christians on the planet? What is it that God is doing, not just in each of us individually, what's he doing in the world? How is he saving the world? What happens when God is saying, I'm not just saving individuals, I'm saving billions of people. What is it that God is doing? And to understand that, we need to understand a very important word. We've actually been reading it for the past couple weeks. I want to show it to you. It's right here in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you've got your copy of God's Word, you're already there. And we've looked at this verse the past two weeks. We kind of keep coming back to it. It ought to be underlined by now in your scriptures. Notice what he says here. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, we've talked about the gospel of God. Last week we talked about repenting and believing. That means to put our trust in Jesus. We want to believe the gospel. But look at this middle phrase. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's almost like he's equating the gospel of God and the kingdom of God and the gospel at the end as if they're all the same thing. God doesn't simply want us to know his gospel. He says, you need to understand that I am building my kingdom. Now, that word kingdom is a little weird for us, right? We are Americans. And as Americans, we are anti-king. We don't do kings. That's how we got started. We don't have a king. We don't want a king. We want to be left alone. To do our own thing. That's kind of what it means to be an American. It's like, man, give me my freedom. And so when you hear the word king, it might feel strange to you. It might conjure up like a, like a Arthurian tale or, or, or some other story from way on in the past. But, but it, you almost don't even have a frame of reference. Like, how would that work today? How would that work in my life today? But this is incredibly important because God right now is saving the world through his kingdom. And look, when you actually begin to look for the kingdom of God in Scripture, you find it everywhere. This is not a one-off kind of concept. This is a foundational concept in Scripture. There are over 300 references to God's kingdom in the Scriptures. Over half of those references come in the New Testament. Now think about that. Your New Testament's only about a quarter of your Bible. And over half the references of kingdom are here at the end. So this isn't some ancient Israel kind of thing, like way off in the, in the past. This is New Testament church kind of stuff. This is Jesus. All of these references to the kingdom of God. I want to show you a bunch of them. Let me show you this first one. Here's John the Baptist. Uh, this is Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. So that's his message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, that's what John's message was. Well, we just read in Mark that that's what Jesus' message was too. After John, Jesus picks up. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He preaches this everywhere in every town about the kingdom of God. And then he elaborates on it. He'll tell a bunch of parables. And almost every single parable he will talk about the kingdom. Look at this next one. This is Matthew 13, 24. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. You will find this preamble in most of the parables. Where they say the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He is explaining what life is like in his kingdom. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here is Luke 9, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is sending out the apostles to preach, and look at what he tells them to say. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't have two tunics. He sends them out, not just to talk about Jesus, but to tell them about the kingdom of God. Go to the next one. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is now resurrected. All right, so he died and rose again. Look what he says. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now that is interesting to me. Jesus didn't say, all right, now you guys get it. You get it now? I'm the Messiah. All right, hey, you get, I died on the cross. I'm, I'm salvation. You need to tell everybody about me. He says, no, you need to tell them about the kingdom of God. 
This was on Jesus' mind, and this is what the disciples did. Go to the next one. Uh, this is Acts 8.12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached, uh, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So this is Philip. He's one of the early deacons. He's out preaching, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was interested in. He's telling them about Jesus, obviously, but also about the kingdom of God. Go to the next one. Uh, here's Acts 19, verse 8. This is Paul now. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You see a pattern here? I mean, it's everywhere. This is the thing that Paul was talking about. This is what the apostles talked about and why. Well, look at this next one. Here's Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Here's why this is so important. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why is the kingdom of God so important for us to understand? Because when you and I were lost, we were enslaved to sin. We were quite literally in the kingdom of darkness. Sin ruled over us. Satan ruled over us. But Jesus has saved us. He has set us free. But when he set us free, we don't become moral free agents. He says, no, I set you free from the kingdom of darkness, and I've transferred you to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To the kingdom of God, which helps us understand what God is doing. Jesus Christ is our king, and he is building a kingdom. This is everywhere in Scripture. We can't simply think about our salvation in individual terms. You've got to pan out and see what he's doing to save the world. He's saving the world through the kingdom of God. Now let's define this for just a moment. What are we talking about here? What do we mean when we say kingdom of God? What does that actually look like? And look, I'll be honest, there are tons of books that have been written about this. So many different people with all these different ideas about what exactly the kingdom of God is, and I can't possibly give you the fullest treatment, but I think there's a couple things that we for sure can say to describe the kingdom of God. It is this. The kingdom of God is the place where God's will and His ways are supreme. Jesus Christ reigns, and so the kingdom of God is the place where God's will and God's ways are supreme. Here's the second thing. It's where his presence is experienced. The kingdom of God is where his will and ways are supreme and where his presence is experienced. This is what God wanted for us from the beginning. It's what he's going to want for us at the end. And so he says, this is my kingdom. So if we understand the gospel through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's pan out and see how this story plays out for the entire world. It starts with creation. God creates us. He creates everything. He puts Adam and Eve in a garden. And remember, he has a relationship with them. He walks with them in the cool of the day. He is involving them in his work. And he gives them a command. He says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Do you see the plan? God has this relationship with his people, and as they grew, his influence would grow. Literally, his presence would cover the world through them. They would take this relationship where they live in one another, and this would literally cover the world. This was God's design from the beginning, but then we fell. We became anti-king people. It's not just Americans, it's all of humanity. We said, we don't want a king. 
I'm fine for you to be with me or to, or to be in a relationship with me. I just don't want you to rule me. I want to stand on my own two feet. I want to do things my own way. I want to have the freedom to do my own thing. And when we rebelled against God, instead of being in His kingdom, we were sold in slavery to the kingdom of sin and darkness. And you just watch it covering the planet. From Cain and Abel and the very first murder between two brothers. To all the sin that proliferates up until the time of Noah. And even after the flood, it continues through Noah. You get the Tower of Babel and all these different things. Mankind saying, we can do this. And you just watch it go from bad to worse. The world is broken. But God never gave up on his plan. He never gives up on the world. And so he's going to start with Abraham. And from Abraham, he creates Israel. And Israel is going to be in slavery and he will come to save his people and he will take them out and he's going to give them these precious things. He's going to give them the law. He's going to say, listen, I want you to be able to live with me, have a relationship with me. And then he gives them something even better. He gives them the tabernacle. He says, I'm going to dwell with you. My presence is going to be with you. He then gives them a place called Israel, a land. They're able to be there and then even more precious, a temple. And in that temple, God's very presence would reside. Now everybody can come to this place. God's presence is with his people. He says, obey my laws and hopefully, maybe, what's going to happen is, is my presence through you is going to cover the planet. But it doesn't work out like that, does it? If you've read the Old Testament, what you'll quickly realize is that we are terrible. And we sin a ton. And try as they might, and even as sincere as many of them were, uh, they just could not obey the law. They could not do this themselves. God gives sacrifices, but there are never enough sacrifices to cover all of the sins and God's presence. Even though everybody is trying to stream here and they pilgrimage to to Israel at different festivals throughout the year, it's just not covering the planet. Until God, which what he knew from the very beginning, sends his son. Jesus Christ sends his son to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever in this world would believe in him, put their trust in him, they would not perish, they would not die in that kingdom of darkness. But no, they would have everlasting life in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ comes and he gives his entire life to save us. And now he has opened up a pathway, not for just the Israelites, not for just a few people, but for anybody who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, there is now redemption. There's redemption in Jesus Christ. We've got creation, fall, redemption. Jesus has come to save the world. Now anybody can come and be a part of him. Anyone can be saved. But now what? Well, when Jesus Christ comes and redeems us, something transformative happens. Something incredible happens. Remember, God wants a relationship with us. God's kingdom is the place where his will and ways are supreme, but it's the place where his presence is is experienced. When Jesus Christ rises from the grave, he says, no, I'm going to be in you. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. You're going to be in me. God's presence comes to live in his people. And he did something incredible with us as a whole. Look at this. This is in Ephesians. Um, uh, Listen to what it says here. Ephesians chapter 2 says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you know what God is doing through his church? As Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ, as the gospel begins to go forth through the nation, God begins to build this multinational kingdom. But look at the way he describes it. He says, you're not just a kingdom, you're my temple. You are the place where God's presence resides. It's not just going to be in Jerusalem anymore. No, my people will be my living temple. In 2 Corinthians, he'll say it explicitly. Chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This was God's desire in Genesis. It will still be his desire in Revelation. How does he accomplish that? Through the church. As God saves us, he begins to put his presence in us and he builds a brand new temple. You see, when Jesus Christ comes in history, he splits it in two. This year, you and I live in the year 2022. 2022 years from what? The coming of Jesus Christ. He has quite literally split human history in two. And when he did so, a massive gravitational shift occurs. It is almost like a spiritual big bang. You see, in the Old Testament, everything had a gravitational pull towards Israel, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. We make pilgrimage. We come back here. Why? This is where God's presence is. Everything is pulling back to here. But when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, something amazing happens. The curtain in the temple rips in two. The barrier keeping us away from God's presence is ripped in two. That doesn't just mean that we can go in. It means that the presence of God is moving out. And where does it move? In every single one of us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are now the living temple of Jesus Christ. But this temple moves. It builds. Instead of drawing everything to Jerusalem, now the gravity pushes out. Now God is sending his people out over the world. Now instead of there being one physical temple, he has thousands, no, millions, now billions of temples that God is building, taking his presence, his life, his kingdom out into the world. Not just for Israel, but every man, woman, and child, every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now the gospel can literally cover the planet. His kingdom can cover the planet. How do you save the world? Through Jesus Christ, through his salvation, and through the kingdom of God. God, that's how you save the planet. That's how you save the world. God's plan to save the world is through us. Anybody terrified by that? A little bit concerned? Maybe like this wasn't a great idea. Jesus says, no, this is the idea. Listen, in me, you can have a restored relationship. In me, there can actually be a restoration. You see, that final word, restoration, is occurring. God's gospel is going forth through his people. Do you know what we are as the kingdom of God? We are the place where God's will and ways are supreme. We are the place where God's presence is experienced. 
We are to be beacons, outposts in this world where God's kingdom is moving forward, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ with the entire world. God's been doing this for 2,000 years, and his gospel is still going forth out into the world. Does the Lord's Prayer now begin to make a little bit more sense to you? What does he say in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches us how to pray? He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what God is doing in the world. He is building his kingdom where we get to walk in him, live in him, and he is in the process of saving quite literally the entire world. This is what he's bringing to us. And so the question is, will we join him in that? Not just you as an individual. This is why God puts you in a church. He puts you with brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us individual gifts that we get to use together. Will we join with him in his plan of saving the world? And if you would like to be a part of building this kingdom of God, let me give you three things that we all need to be doing. Three ways that we can be building the kingdom of God and join Him in His plan of saving the world. The first is this. We build the kingdom of God by living in Jesus. We build the kingdom of God by living in Jesus. Remember the point. The goal is that we would be in relationship with Him. This is why He made us. This is what we're going to have forever. And so how do we really build the kingdom? We live in him. We grow in him. We become more like him. We learn of him. We're not just learning facts about him. No, we're growing in an actual, real relationship with him. When we gather together, we get to lift him up in worship. We literally get to grow in our knowledge, our experience, our understanding of the Lord. We grow in our relationship. This is why we lift his name high every single time we come in here for worship. Listen, you can't really expect that when you go out to your workplace or your neighborhoods. But in here, we all come in with a specific purpose. We are all believers in Christ. I hope that you are. We come in for this purpose, to give worship and honor and praise to our King. Not just our friend, not just our Savior, not just the one who loves us, but the sovereign King of a kingdom whose will and ways are supreme. And in this community, we lift Him high. We surrender to Him as we grow in our relationship with Him. How do you build the kingdom? You live in Jesus Christ. Grow in Him. Don't fall into the Corinthian error and just say, well, I'm saved and do whatever you want. Don't fall into the, 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 the Galatian error and just try to do all this by yourself. No, just live in Him. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not. You're not. We're not. But we are in the process of growing, becoming. Let's live in Jesus Christ. Here's the second way. We build the kingdom by loving one another. We build the kingdom by loving one another. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus says, I have a new command I give to you. It's this, love one another. In the same way that I loved you, I want you to love one another. By this will all people know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Live in Jesus. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so how do we actually build the kingdom? Well, guess what? God gives us this training ground right here in our relationships to practice it. He gives you brothers and sisters 
He doesn't want you to be out on your own, doing your own thing. He says, no, every Christian ought to be connected to a, a local body of believers. Why? Because you need their gifts. You need them to serve you, and they need you to serve them. Only together can we really grow in the Lord. And also, only here can you actually practice what I taught you. Because you see, I want you to love people graciously. When they mess up, we're going to forgive. We're going to work it out. We're going to figure it out. In this place, we're going to encourage each other to holiness. And we say, no, no, in this community, God's will and his ways are supreme. We want to follow after him. In this community, we get to serve one another sacrificially. We bear one another's burdens. We help one another. We walk with each other. We encourage each other. We make sacrifices of our time, of our energy, of our gifts, of our money, of just our life. Why? Because that's how Jesus loves us in the kingdom of God amongst his people. This ought to be a place where people who are radically different from one another show incredible sacrifice, love, and grace to one another. So much so that when the outside world looks at us, they say, that should not happen. That is miraculous. That is incredible. How, how do all of you people hang out together? Why do you love one another? Why do you sacrifice for one another? Why would you forgive? Why would you live in such a way? And we get the opportunity to say, because Jesus Christ loved us, gave his life for us, and he's our king. And we serve him. How do we change the world? We do so by actually loving one another in real time. That 1 Corinthians 13 passage, the one about love, love is patient, love is kind, that's not about marriages. It's about the church. So that we can love one another. This is how you change the world, is by loving one another. Now I need you to be very, uh, I need you to listen very carefully for what I'm about to say, because there's something very important we need to understand with this, because there are some people in the Christian church who have kind of gotten off track with this. And they have a different idea about how you change the world as Christians. They say, no, 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 the way you really change the world, the way you really build the kingdom of God is not through loving one another. That's good. And that you just keep that. That's fine. But the way you're really going to change the world is through political power. And if we could just get all of the Christians in power, they could legislate this whole thing and we could make everything a Christian nation. And if we just had a Christian nation, it would all be fine. It's a phrase you might have heard recently called Christian nationalism. And we are not the first people in America to get sucked into this. People all throughout history have fallen for this error of assuming that the way you actually build God's kingdom is not through the power of his presence and through love, but instead, no, if we just had enough political power, then everything would be fine. We somehow come up with this idea that we're a special Christian nation. You need to understand, as Americans, we're not. We're not. To be a Christian nation, you need two things. Jesus has to be king, and everybody has to be a Christian. That's a Christian nation. To have a Christian nation, Jesus must be king, and everyone's a Christian. Now, I got great news. We are all going to live in that country. We are. There's a future where you and I are going to live in a society where Jesus is king, and everybody is a believer. That is our future. It is coming, but it's not happening now. That comes next week when we talk about heaven and hell, so show up for that. 
But you don't get that here. Do you know why? Because not everybody is a believer, and not everybody surrenders to him as king. And if you substitute the love of God for human power, it will always go wrong. There's a guy named Tom Holland who wrote a book of history called Dominion on Christian history. This is the historian Tom Holland and not Spider-Man Tom Holland. It's very important to get it because I know that's where some of y'all went. It's not him. Different guy. All right? Historian Tom Holland. Spider-Man Tom Holland would be a fun history book. No. Historian Tom Holland wrote this book of Christian history. It's seminal. It's massive. It's 2,000 years of history. But time after time, you find different nations, nations with a lot better pedigree than America, who say, we're going to be the Christian nation. There once was such a thing called the Holy Roman Empire. You remember this? Think about that for a second. The Holy Roman Empire. They said, we'll make it holy. Don't worry about the Roman or the empire part. We're holy, right? It doesn't turn out well. There are so many terrible things that happen as people try to have a holy Roman empire. If you want to find a true Christian nation, how do we have any better claim than the English? The English started their identity as a Christian nation in the 6th century. They beat us by like, do the math, like 18 centuries, like a lot. It's not 18, it's 16. Whatever it is, it's a lot. They have been, they've got a Christian king and queen for crying out loud. Listen, they say, we can be a Christian nation. It's not working out there very well at all, uh, at all. When you get to the 8th century, you get a French conqueror named Charlemagne, Charles the Great. And Charlemagne goes running around conquering all these nations. You know what he would do? He would conquer nations and he would force everybody to get baptized. Because that's how you make a Christian nation. Just force them all to be Christians. Dunk them. Now you're saved. Move along. This didn't work out well either. Now the French are not a very Christian nation at all. Uh, in the 1600s, you get the Netherlands. Uh, in the Netherlands, they absolutely thought of themselves as a Christian nation. There were roving gangs who used to roam the streets in the Netherlands, and they would get into fights and kill one another over theology. This is what their gangs were identified by, their Christian theology. And they would kill each other over it, thinking we're going to make ourselves a Christian nation. That is not what Amsterdam is really known for these days if you go there. And look, I can go on. South Africa actually thinks it's going to be the Christian nation, the new Israel. I mean, look, I can go on. There's so many nations who say, we're special. We're the new Israel. Listen, God's kingdom does not reside in a single country. And praise God, it doesn't. God's kingdom spans the world. It is for every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom exists where his will and ways are supreme and where his presence is experienced. You cannot force people into this. You cannot legislate people into this. You don't build the kingdom of God at the edge of a gun. You build the kingdom of God through the gospel. Only through God, through his sacrifice of his son, through his love, through the Holy Spirit, that is the only way you can build an actual kingdom of God. And so no, we're not going to fall for Christian nationalism. We only have one king as Christians. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's the only one we'll ever need. He's the only one we follow. And guess what? His kingdom is coming. So here's the third thing. You know how you build the kingdom of God? You spread the gospel. Listen, I love our nation. I pray that we see revival in our nation. We need it. Amen. 
We absolutely need it. Do you know how we're going to get that revival? When the Spirit of God moves through the power of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ into every man, woman, and child in this country. Do you want to see that happen? It's not going to happen at the ballot box. It's going to happen when we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to be a part of saving the world. We get the incredible privilege of sharing the greatest news that there has ever been. That you don't have to do anything. You can't save yourself. But God loves you. And he'll give you grace. You can be forgiven. You can be adopted into his family. You can live in a relationship with God forever. If you'll simply put your trust in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are or what you've done, we get the incredible privilege of sharing the gospel with a world that desperately needs it. I pray that we see a revival in our time. I pray that we see renewal. I hope that you'll join with me in praying, not just for our own congregation, because I pray that revival starts here. The renewal starts here. But don't stop here. I hope you're praying for every pastor and every church in our city. When you pass them down the road, you ought to be praying for their pastors and praying for their congregation. As we think about our city, not just our city, but our state, and not just our state, but our nation, we're going to be lifting up and asking God to bless God's kingdom spread out invisibly all across this nation, all across the world, that God would bring revival. And when you and I share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we love one another in His name, when we live in a growing relationship with Him, God's kingdom is come. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's how you save the world. And the question is, will you join me in it? Because if you've got concern, care, love for Mount Laurel and Chelsea and Shelby County, Jefferson County, Birmingham, and Alabama, recognize that God has put us right here, us, this group of people, weird as we are, us, at this point, at this time, to share the gospel with the people who are here now. We get to be a part of him bringing his kingdom and saving the world. May we join him in his work. So bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. just a moment, we're going to sing a song of really a prayer asking that God would bring that revival. That he truly would change us. He would transform us, and not just us, but our our whole city. But in the same way that we can't save ourselves, we can't change the world on our own. Praise be to God that he's put his spirit in us. And he's doing the impossible. He's using normal people like us to do the impossible, to change the world. This is why we need you to be involved, not not just sporadic, but involved. Why? Because we're a part of his kingdom. We have to love one another, help one another, serve as Jesus gives us opportunity. Speak his gospel as he gives us opportunity that more people might know him, experience him, and enjoy the life that God made us all for. Just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing this song. And I pray that you would lift it up as a true prayer. Maybe you want to come down to the front and and pray for our community. Pray for your family. Pray for our nation. Let's lift up a cry to him. Let's ask the Lord to move in power, but to start with us. And let's shine forth his glory to the ends of the earth. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for the life that you give us that we don't deserve. 
God, thank you for involving us in your plan to save everything. And Father, forgive us when we try to take shortcuts. Lord, there's only one way to do this, and it's through you. And Lord, if you can save the world through the likes of us, Lord, please do so. Lord, we were lost when you found us. We were broken. But you transformed us. You're still doing it. Can you do that for our neighbors? Can you do that for our friends? Can you do that for our coworkers, our family members, the people we drive by on 280? Lord, the people we, we interact with and in all of our social gatherings, Lord, would you bring a revival in this city, in this town, in this nation? And Lord, we will give you the glory. You are our sovereign, loving, gracious King. And we submit to you. Build your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up if you will. Let's sing this song as a prayer. You come as the Lord leads you.